Okay, so here we are diving into uh, Revelation. We're going to start with uh, Revelation chapter 4. If you want to turn over there in your Bibles. <coughs> Pardon me. Revelation chapter four. So we talked, we talked last week about how, as we go further into this book, uh, you know, we've got past all the safe chapters now. And today we're, we're heading into the, oh boy, here we come chapters, you know, the, 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 the stuff that's going to, you know, freak us out a little bit. Now, before we dive in, I want to say this, that I completely realize there are, um, lots of different views of how this book should be interpreted and, and that sort of thing. Um, the benefit of my interpretation is I have the microphone. And, uh, and so I am completely aware that there might be uh, some of you uh, misguided souls that have a different interpretation than me of Revelation. And I'm absolutely okay with that. Okay, it's not, this is not a deal breaker issue for our church. It's not a reason for us to break fellowship. Um, when you're dealing with a book that is so rich in symbology, and I mean, every verse is, has something that is kind of meant as to be symbolic. There's not a lot of literal speech in this book. Then, uh, it's uh, obviously there are going to be lots of different, uh, you know, uh, views of how you could come up with interpretations on it. This is what I want you to do. I, I challenge you to do this the first week. I'm going to challenge you to do it again. Um, for the next several weeks, try to, uh, and I always do this when I dig in hard to a Bible study of a particular book of the Bible, I, I try to do this um, uh, very diligently myself. And that is I try to push to the side all of my preconceived notions about what I think I know about that book and approach it fresh. Approach it fresh. And so I want to challenge you to do that as we go through this, to kind of push aside what you think you know about this book, approach it fresh, and, and, and see what happens. If, if at the end of the study you, feel, you still think, oh, man, Jeff's a wackadoo and he's totally wrong, I'm cool with that. It's all good, okay? Uh, but we'll, we'll get through this. So um, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Wizard of Oz. Anybody else like The Wizard of Oz? Love The Wizard of Oz. I can remember The Wizard of Oz as a kid. Now, I didn't see it when it originally came out, uh, which I think that was like in the 30s, right? Sometime in the 30s is when it originally came out. Uh, But I just remember as a kid, before we had cable, before you could rent movies and, you know, uh, stream movies or anything like that, about once or twice a year, one of the networks, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, one of them would show the Wizard of Oz, and it was a big event in my house. Anytime that one of the networks showed The Wizard of Oz, we, as kids, me and my brothers, we were so excited. Just loved that movie. And I can remember there, there were two villains in my childhood that just scared the holy stuff out of me, right? And that was Darth Vader. Darth Vader just scared me to death. And then the Wicked Witch of the West. They were the two scariest things. Now, I look back on it now, and I think, uh, you know, maybe not as scary, but still pretty darn creepy. Um, but the Wicked Witch of the West just was so frightening to me as a child, especially when I was three, four, five years old. And, uh, and so just a fantastic movie. I really love the movie. Now I like it in a different way. I think they could take all the music out, and I'd be fine. Uh, but but I, still, I still like the movie. Now... Here's the thing about that movie. Well, I want to show a scene from the movie real fast, and, and then we'll keep talking about it. But in this movie, uh, there is, uh, if, if you don't know, I, I can't imagine that you don't know, but I'm sure there's somebody in this room that hasn't seen either Star Wars or Wizard of the Oz, and I'm not even sure we can be friends. And so, um, 
So in The Wizard of Oz, there's this girl, uh, Dorothy, who's, who's magically transported from Kansas off to a magical land called Oz, and she is on a journey to try to find her way home, and she has been told that there is a wizard in the, in the Emerald City of Oz that will uh, help her get back home. And on her journey, she meets uh, a few traveling companions, a, uh, a, a dim-witted scarecrow and uh, a cowardly lion and a, uh, and a, a tin man with no heart. And, and, and they all decide for their life problems, they need to seek the wizard. He can help them all and that sort of thing. And so they eventually make it to the throne room of the Emerald City in Oz to see the wizard. And, uh, and he gives them a task. If you want me to do these things for you, then you have to go, you know, uh, take care of the Wicked Witch of the West. They do that. They come back. I'm giving away the whole story here. And, and when they get back to the, uh, to the throne room again, uh, they find out that things are not what they seem with the wizard. So here, check, check out this scene. All right. Why have you come back? Please, sir. We've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. All right. Very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. So um, here's the thing about that whole story of Oz. In a world where we're often told that uh, powerful figures or powerful governments or powerful religions will be able to uh, solve all of our problems and take care of us, uh, Frank Baum's story of, of The Wizard of Oz is a, uh, a kind of a cynical view of power and I think divine power especially. There are some references in this, even in this very scene that we're getting ready to read in uh, the passage that we're getting ready to read where John is transported into the throne room of God himself, of God himself. And the thing that that we have here with uh, the book of Revelation is that Revelation kind of wages war on a world who would uh, reduce God to something or someone that we could just easily dismiss. When we get into this book, these chapters that we're hitting today, chapters four and five, where it is suddenly, I mean, we are thrust into the presence of God and it is, it is unbelievable 
fantastical. It is uh, beyond, uh, you know, John, you get the sense as John's writing down these words of everything he's seeing and what he's hearing, he is trying to catch up with what he's, his brain is processing and with everything he's seeing and hearing. It is, it is beyond his wildest dreams to be transported into the presence of God, the throne room of God. And the, kind of what we're going to discover in these two chapters is this. I'm going to give you a point before we, hit, before we even hit some of the uh, uh, scriptures here. Is that God reigns with power and authority that human rulers can only dream of. God reigns with power and authority that human rulers can only dream of. I don't care um, what dictator you're speaking of. I don't care what historical figure you might reference. I don't care what president or presidential candidate uh, you might have in your mind. God reigns with power and authority that others are only a, a shadow, an imitation of. And this is John's kind of one of his opening messages to the churches that he's sending these letters to uh, because he knows what they're going through, the hard times that they're facing, the persecution that they're facing underneath all these rulers of the world and, 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 and civil authorities and everything else and even, even other religious authorities. And he's saying, these people need to go. No, Jesus is saying, these people need to know there is a God who is in control and everybody else that stands over my church and pretends power, they need to know there is a God who has the real thing, the real thing. And we're getting ready to be introduced to the God who, uh, whose power, whose authority is authentic. It is the real deal. It's the real deal. Now let's dive into revelation chapter four. We're going to hit uh, both chapters <clears throat> today. We have a lot of reading to do. Uh, they're short chapters, but we're going to hit them. Now, I, I, moving forward, I'm, I'm trying, going to try to kind of reduce this down to where we're not reading every word of the book going forward, um, and, and we'll summarize a lot of parts. But there was, this is just so packed. These two chapters are just so dense and so beautiful and so packed with important information. I, I couldn't skim through any of it. So we're going we're to hit through this. So Revelation 4, start with verse 1. It says this. After this, I looked, and this is John talking. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne, excuse me, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Maybe an emerald city. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with, with golden crowns on their heads. So here we get this picture of of uh, God seated on his throne and around, and it's just in glory, and, and there's this emerald rainbow all around and the whole thing. And then in this vision also, he sees these 24 elders, each with their own thrones, thrones seated around 
the throne of God. Now, this, this is going to conjure up images that were very familiar to the people of that day. Any decent ruler or emperor would have also had a strong council of leaders surrounding him to help him lead, to help him rule, to advise him in things that he needed to be advised with. And so here we get this picture of these 24 elders. Now, why 24? I think, I think to me anyway, it's pretty obvious that the reference here is of a 12 and a 12. Uh, it's, it's, it's a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles that also that Jesus uh, uh, chose. And it's this concept here of um, these, these 20. Now, some have said that these 24 elders are actually the tribes of Israel and actually uh, the, the apostles. I think that they are because of the way they speak to humanity later on as not a part of humanity, but apart from humanity. I think that they are angelic beings that, but that represent those two bodies. They represent Israel. They represent the church. In other words, they represent God's people. They're, they're representative of what God's people uh, and, and should, should be. So they're, they're worshiping God, these 24 elders. They're, 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 they're bowing down to him at different points that we're going to read about. They're singing to him. These 24 elders are serving God in perfection the way that God had hoped Israel and now the church would serve and worship him in reality. But in heaven, heaven is this kind of mirror, almost, uni- almost mirror universe of what's going on down here where everything that God intended is being done as God intended while we struggle through, while we struggle through. And we're a very, kind of a mirror image, uh, a dimly lit mirror image of all of that. So, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've talked about that in previous weeks. You can go back and listen to that. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. A sea of glass. Now, now there's a sea and it's, it's still, it's calm like crystal. I was, uh, several years ago, it was when Jamie was pregnant with Isla. We were, uh, Jamie and I got to take a trip and, and uh, for about, a week, we drove through Scotland, and we just drove through the, uh, the Highlands and stayed at bed and breakfast. It was a great trip. Uh, but there was one day, we come around a corner, and there was a, what we would call a lake, what they would call a loch, uh, that was just right in front of us with mountains in the background. And this uh, loch was so perfectly still. It was a perfect mirror reflection of that mountain in the background, it looked like you were staring into a deep chasm instead of at water. And, and I, I whipped the car over and I, I jumped out and Jamie was pregnant. She was like, take pictures. I'll look at it later. And, and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so I'm just standing there looking at this. I've, I've never seen anything so beautiful in my life. A, a, a body of water it was a pretty good sized body of water, completely still, not a ripple, not a ripple one. And, and, and it was just like, just like glass. It was absolutely beautiful. And before long, this elderly gentleman pulled up and he was on holiday, he said, and, and, uh, and, and him and I both are just staring at this with tears coming down our face. We had never seen anything so beautiful in our lives. And here we're told there's a sea of glass that sits in the throne room of God. Now, the reason that's significant is because in the ancient world, uh, the sea did not, uh, was not symbolic of anything calm. The sea was always something that brought up fear 
in the, 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 the heart of anybody that uh, knew about the sea in the ancient world. The sea is where the storm would come up. The sea is where lives were lost. The sea is where there were rumors of beasts and monsters living in the deep. The sea represented the chaos that uh, existed in the world and where God is saying where your world and your sea is chaotic and brings you fear in, in my side of the kingdom it is peaceful. It is calm. There's peace in my kingdom. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Here's, here it gets a little weird. <clears throat> around the, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, like the second, uh, and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we get this image of these four living creatures. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible we've seen these four living creatures. In fact, um, Isaiah, in his vision of, of in being in the presence of God, references something very similar, the same, same uh, animals featured and everything. Ezekiel, in his image, uh, dream that he had about the, being in the presence of God, same thing, these four living creatures. And, and so here we call back to those previous prophecies, and we see this again. And what these four living creatures represent, they just simply represent, uh, they're these angelic beings that represent all creation. Everything that God created, all of creation is worshiping him. All creation is constantly in eternity crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures, we're back in the scripture here, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, this is their worship. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we get this this glimpse into uh, God's side of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven where perfect worship is taking place, where all creation cries out in worship to God and where all God's people worship him authentically from an from a, from a authentic place in their hearts. Now, the thing that is interesting about what, the way the creatures worship and the way the elders worship, the creatures being all, all of the natural creation, the elders being all of God's people, is that the creatures worship him. The Bible makes reference to the, that, that if, if you don't worship him, that the rocks and the hills would cry out, that all creation sings out to God. There's this idea that all the natural world is actively worshiping God. Even if we choose to stop worshiping God, God will not cease to be worshiped because his very creation will cry out to him and worship him just by, the, by their existence. We, if, you're, if you're a nature person, you've experienced this, where if you're like me, you get out in God's beautiful creation and you find a real connection to to God there. You can almost envision all the mountains and the streams and the hills and the, and the trees crying out to God. I've been in redwood circles and stood in the middle of those, what they call fairy rings of redwoods and that, that come up like a giant cathedral around you. It is creation worships God. If you've stood on the beach and you've heard that 
crushing sound of those waves coming in over and over and over, this world groans and cries out in worship to God. But it does so instinctively. It does so reflexively. It just does because it is created, and that's the way God created it to be. God's people, on the other hand, when they worship God, they worship him a little differently. They don't, it's not just simply holy, 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 because you're holy. It's we worship you. How does it say that there? Worthy are you, are, are, are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for, in other words, because, because you created all things, because all things were created by you, because you alone are worthy because, because is a big word in, <laughs> because is a big word in worship, because is a big word in worship. When we cry out and worship to God, we not only worship God just simply for him being God, we worship him because of what we know he's done for us. Because of how he sent his son to die for us and to pay the price for our sin. Because we live these blessed lives where he leads us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Because, because, because he is a wonderful God. Amen? We worship God. God's people worship him not just as some sort of action of our DNA. Now, I think hardwiring into our DNA is the act of worship. We're going to worship something. If you're not worshiping Jesus, you're going to find something or someone to worship. You'll worship your family. You'll worship your sports team. You'll worship, uh, you know, politics. You'll worship something. You'll worship your career. But worship is only truly um, realized when it's directed at Jesus Christ because of what he's done for for us because his love will never, ever fail us. It'll never, ever fail us. So this is the principle. That worship, as, as John gets this vision into heaven, that worship is happening in heaven as it should be happening here on earth. Not as it is happening, but as it should be happening here on earth. We, we, we live in this kingdom split world that was split by, uh, by uh, sin. God's kingdom that we call heaven, our kingdom or his, still his kingdom here that we live in that we call earth. They're split. They're the same kingdom, but they've been severed. They've been split. And one day, as we'll find out later in this chapter, in this uh, book, they will be restored. Everything will be set right again. All things will be made new. But it, for now, we live in this kind of split level kingdom. And in that kingdom, in heaven, worship is taking place as it should be. It's perfect. And on our side of the kingdom, not so much. Not so much. It's no secret how jacked up our world is, amen? I mean, it's no secret at all how screwed up this... Watch the news for 10 minutes. You'll see how incredibly screwed up this world is. The fact that we have to have a conference like the Awareness Conference. The fact that uh, we are, uh, you know, you, we are being split apart at the seams politically and ideally uh, in this country right now. Uh, things are not perfect at all. The fact that there's such a small value on life as we know it. Things are not perfect at all. But there's coming a day when God will set all things right. And just as Revelation gives us this glimpse into heaven of the way things will be and should be now if it weren't for sin, I think that 
there's another kind of split level existence, another kind of split level reality that happens right here on our side of the kingdom. And it's the difference between the world and the church. I think just as we, the church can look into the book of revelation and see how things should be because it's operating perfectly on the other side. I think the world should be able to look into the church and see how things should be. Amen. That we should exist in this, in this way that the world could look at us and see, you know, while the rest of the world is having trouble how, figuring out how to communicate with each other and resolve conflict, that group of people called the church, they seem to have it down. They can disagree and still genuinely love each other. I, I think the world should be able to look into the to church and where, the, where, where if you look into the world, you see injustice. You see the opposite right here in the church. You see justice and you see equality. I think where the world looks and sees violence in itself, it should work, look into the church and see peace, peace. Where the world looks at itself and sees hate so much of the time, it should be able to look into the church and go, what's it about that group of people that they just love? They don't hate. Now, that's if everything was right. That's if all things were set right. But here's the thing. That's the goal that we as a church are aiming for. Like, I, is that not the church you want to be a part of? That's the church I want to be a part of. And this is the secret sauce of church, that if we can figure out a way to do church like that, the whole world will want to be a part of it. We, we won't be able to beat them away. It, the whole world will want to be a part of that. Let's be that kind of church. Now, Revelation, we're moving on to chapter 5 now. Chapter 5. <clears throat> it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll is going to come up uh, heavily in the next several chapters. And these seals, we're going to, we're going to dig into the details of these seven seals in, uh, next week. But this scroll is basically, as we're getting ready to find out, is basically contains God's plan for setting all things right, for making all things new, for dealing with the problems of this world that sin has gotten terribly off track. This scroll contains God's master plan for saving the world. But it's sealed up with seven seals. And then it says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep. This is John. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, so this elder steps forward because John's upset that no one can, he, no one can know what the God's master plan is for saving the world. All hope must be lost, right? And this elder steps forward and says, no, behold, here he comes, the lion of Judah, the strong conqueror the strong conqueror, your true king, here he comes. He has done what it takes to become worthy to be the one to open up the scrolls. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns 
and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. This is one of the most beautiful moments in all of scripture where John gets introduced to this powerful, regal, royal, all-seeing lion of Judah. And when he turns to see, here he comes, he doesn't see a lion. Instead, he sees a slaughtered lamb. Beautiful in its imagery, beautiful in its imagery. And the idea here is that while this lion is introduced, the reality is the only one worthy was the slaughtered lamb, Jesus Christ. And it's not that Jesus is either lion or lamb. It's that he is both. He is both. He is strong enough and powerful enough, all-knowing and all-seeing enough to be the one worthy to carry out this plan that God has for setting all things right. He is that. But that victory, that place where he stands in power and victory was hard fought and hard won, not by riding a, a, a cross, you know, a, on top of a mighty steed and being royal and regal with his arm, armor, as a lot of people would think of as a mighty ruler. No, it was hard fought and it was hard won on the cross as the slaughtered lamb who took away the sins of the world. This makes no sense to the world. The world wants a strong leader. Isn't that what we hear constantly in our election coverage right now? Which one's going to be the strongest leader? Which one? We don't want a weak leader. Uh, if, we, if, you know, if this one gets elected, you know, so in, you know, this country's going to walk all over us because he or she is weak. We need a strong, strong leader. And the, here we go. In, in, in the heavenly scheme of things, the one who is the strongest is the one who would lay down his life. The one who would lay down his life. It's beautiful, beautiful in its imagery. And he went, the lamb here, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the elders deliver both the harps and these golden bowls of incense, the praise and the prayers of the saints. Who are the saints? That's us. This is where we enter into the story right here. That's us. All of the church, all of those who are faithful to Jesus Christ, all of our prayers. When we come together on Sunday morning and we sing these praises and we make this music, it is not just because we're trying to be cool. Not at all. If we're just trying to be cool, that is a huge waste of our time. I'm not, is anybody else impressed by cool? Like I stopped being impressed by cool when Fonzie went off the air, right? Nobody, nobody's impressed by cool anymore. You talk to people who are outside church when they're looking and thinking about going to church, what they're not thinking about is I got to find a cool place. That's not what they're thinking about. Now, the way we do things might attract a certain demographic or whatever, you know, that's fine. But the world is not looking for cool. The world is looking for real. They're looking for real answers. They're looking for real power. They're looking for real love. Real. It's not about being cool. When we sing these praises every Sunday, it's about us singing and saying all the things. In fact, some of these, th- these songs that we've read this morning in this scripture, they may sound familiar to you because we sing a lot of them here as part of our songs. We sing a lot of those exact same words. We lift those praises up to God 
here they, they, those, they get delivered to Jesus himself, not just our praises, but our prayers too. All that time that you spend praying, all that time that you spend crying out to God, when your life is not going right and you have no one to turn to and you turn to God, he sees your pain and he sees your problems. Those prayers are delivered up to him. Those prayers are delivered up to him. We, the church, active in this story. Now, as we said earlier, the truth of reality is that this world isn't perfect. And our lives aren't perfect. And you're, you're per, just because you come to church and you follow God and you do all the right things does not mean your life is going to go awesome. In fact, it may very well not go awesome. Tragedy can and will strike your world eventually. It will. So it's the nature of humanity. I wish I could say that as soon as you came to faith in Jesus Christ, all that stuff was going to go away. But it's just not. Death is going to hit your household. That stinks. Welcome to church. But that's just true. Tra- loss of job, loss of income, that stuff's going to hit your household. That stuff is just going to happen. The reason that we are given in Scripture that we can persevere through whatever comes our way, whether it's persecution because of our faith, whether it's just the suckiness of life that hits us day after day, The reason we're told in Scripture that we can persevere through whatever comes our way, our perseverance here on this earth is motivated not by what we can do, but it's motivated by the realities of heaven. The reason that we can keep going in the face of grimness is not because we know everything's going to be all right. It's because we know everything is all right in the presence of God. And one day that presence will be our reality here. Our, we are completely motivated by that. If all we have to motivate us is just our own ingenuity, our own creativity, our own intellect, our own hopefulness, whatever, then we've got a rough road to hoe. It's not going to be an easy road for us. But when we can look to a place that we know in reality is perfect and is eventually coming to us, where God will, not might, not we hope, but he will set all things right. That gives us the hope to carry on. And our hope, the reason we have this hope is because we serve a risen Savior. Not just a Savior who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, but a, a risen Savior who is presently risen. That resurrection is a real thing. Here's the deal. When it comes to deciding whether or not you're going to believe you know, Christianity, whether or not you're going to be, become a person of faith, um, I think Jesus' teachings are actually secondary. You can, now, you can scour Jesus' teachings and decide if you, that's what you want to follow. I think that's actually secondary. I think the primary thing that you have to wrestle with and come to grips with is the resurrection. If, if you can believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and bodily and spiritually rose and still lives in this glorified, risen state today, then everything else falls underneath that. I told somebody that whenever in doubt, go with a guy who got himself up out of the grave. Go with a guy who got himself up out of the grave. 
That's the reality, this resurrection reality that we as followers of Jesus Christ have placed our faith in, that we believe in, that we know that same resurrection reality that has glorified Jesus Christ will grab hold of us someday and, and we will exist in a glorified state as well. Resurrection awaits all of us. It awaits all of us. Now, there's this guy, uh, Chuck Colson. Anybody know who Chuck Colson is? Chuck Colson is an author. He is a radio personality. Uh, and he was one of the 12 guys indicted in the whole Watergate hearing with uh, uh, President Nixon. He did some jail time. And uh, Chuck Colson said this. He's a believer. Uh, really came uh, to a firmness of faith, I think, uh, through his prison time. Uh, but he's been a, an outspoken advocate for uh, Christianity. He said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every single one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. And they would not have endured that if it weren't true. He said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. He said, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Why were they willing to endure uh, beatings, stonings, even death and imprisonment? For this message and never once let go of it because once they had seen somebody who once was dead and was now alive, you can't pretend that didn't happen. You cannot pretend that didn't happen. Let's finish this out. Revelation 5, starting with verse 9. And they sang a new song. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, (coughs) to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is our glimpse into the throne room uh, and and, and of the the lamb coming to open up the scrolls and open up God's plan to set everything right. And we're getting ready to dive into that. We're getting ready to dive into that. But this is what you need to know right here and right now, that God has a plan to set all things right. Right. Everything that's jacked up about this world, everything that's wrong with this world, everything that's wrong with your life and wrong with my life, all this messed up reality that we wish everything where the entire week feels like a Monday. God has a plan to set every single thing right again, perfect the way that he created. And that plan centers on Jesus Christ. That plan centers on Jesus Christ. Things don't get made right in this jacked up world if you take Jesus out of the equation. It's all about him. 
It's all about him. And here we get this glimpse into heaven where everything is as it should be, as God created it. Perfect perfection, perfect worship, perfect praise, the perfect dealings with the the praise and the prayer of men and women. Everything is perfect. And we have that to look forward to and we have that to hope for. That's coming to us one day. That's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful parts of the story is that this story is not so much about how we're going to go to heaven. It's the story of how heaven is getting prepared to come to us. That God will set all things right in this world and that split, fractured kingdom will one be whole, one day be whole again. One day be whole again. And in the meantime, our role as Christ's followers is to keep on serving him and to keep being faithful to him and keep praying in anticipation of that day. Jesus taught us a really beautiful way to pray for that very thing. I want you guys to say this prayer with me right now. Put that up on the screen. Matthew 5, it says this. Jesus said, pray, like, pray then like this. Pray it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Will you pray that second line with me one more time? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. God, bring your kingdom so that we can see your will, your goodwill being done right here as we know it's being done in heaven right now. We want to see that kingdom become whole again. And God promises us that's going to happen. And here in the next few weeks, we're going to get into the details of what that plan looks like. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your, um, your good word to us today. We thank you that while we look around this world and we see so much that is wrong, we can have hope because everything that's wrong about this world, we know is right about yours. Everything that's wrong with our side of the kingdom is perfect in your side of the kingdom. And so God, we pray that your kingdom would come And that we would see your will be done right here on earth, just as we know right now it's being done in heaven. We look forward to that day when you become the center of all creation in a visible, tangible way. When all creation cries out to you in glorious praise. When our fears are set aside. When our pain is set aside. All those things that are broken about this world are no more. And we just live with you in eternity. We can't wait to see what that looks like. And we know your word reveals a lot of that to us. And we can't wait to get to this part of the story. But for now, we anxiously await for your kingdom to come. So God, we pray that this morning. Our nation is full of division, pain, disease, hate, murder, injustice. And we anxiously await 
when you set all things right again. Thank you for this hope that we have. And we, we also anxiously await and hope because we know that the resurrection that was first exemplified in your son will one day be our reality too. Thank you. I just want to throw this out there before we leave this morning. Um, as you start coming to church here, you start kind of being more and more exposed to God's word and what maybe what he wants to be doing in your life. Um, we like to think of, of things in terms of next steps. So let's just say that you're here in this room and you've never really had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never been a religious person, a faithful person, whatever. But you, there's something attractive about what's going on here. There's something attractive about the, 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 the witness that praise itself you know, speaks to your heart. There's something attractive about the message that's being preached. There's something attractive about just the people and that are here and our love for each other and our desire to be real change makers in our community and our world. You're starting to think, well, maybe this church thing is not what I thought it was. Maybe it is something I could be a part of. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is. If you're wondering what your next step is, your next step is just simply this, to just turn your life over to him. There's no magical process to do that. There's no magical prayer to say or anything like that. It's just simply you saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to step out in faith here and I'm going to believe that you are who you said you are, that you died for my sins because I couldn't pay the price for my sins myself, that you have made a way for me to live in relationship with God, that you are preparing a place for me someday where all things will be set right. Jesus, I know I don't have it all figured out and you know how busted up and broken I am. But I'm just going to place my faith in you and trust that you will set all things right. The same Jesus that will set all things right in this world someday will set all things right in your life right now. I'm not saying everything's going to become perfect right now. I'm just going to say you're going to, Jesus is going to give you through the power of his Holy Spirit that will, that will come into your life when you start a relationship with him. Jesus is going to give you the ability to handle anything that comes your way. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. If you're unfaithful to him, he can't be unfaithful to you. He loves you. It's the most perfect love you'll ever experience. So this is what I want you to do. I just want you to, in your own time, as you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you in, Begin to pray that prayer to Jesus. Turn your life over to him. And then this is the next thing I want you to do, your next, next step. Come and tell me about it. Come and tell someone, you know, that's in leadership around here about the decision that you made. Because one, we want to celebrate with you. And your next step, is, as, as the Bible teaches us, is that is to be baptized. And we'll tell you all about that. It's nothing weird, I promise. Other than we're going to get you wet. That's kind of weird. But it's all good, trust me. But do that. Step into that relationship. Quit putting it off. Quit, quit waiting until you've got your life figured out and cleaned up because you'll never get there. You'll never get there. It's like waiting for the perfect time to have a baby. It's never going to happen. Never, ever. So turn your life over to him. He loves you. He's tired of you being out of relate. He's chasing you. Some of you I know this morning can feel him chasing you right now. Turn your life over to him. And then come tell us about it. All right. I want everybody to have a great week. Come back next week and bring a friend. And um, if you brought kids, take as many home with you as you brought. Okay. All right.